We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is Mean Lean from ArsenalVision.co.uk. Oh, I'm not feeling very well today. Been burning the candle at both ends for too long and it's catching up with me now. I'm feeling rather ill, my face hurts and I'm bunged up and this is not fun. But anyway, I'm going to move on quickly because um, I need to go back to bed. Uh, in today's show, Elliot, Paul and Tim will be discussing the uh, 4-1 victory away to Hull City and um, a bit about the uh, Forest game tonight in the EFL Cup. Enjoy the podcast. Back after the Forest game. So, yeah. Bye. So, it was a tough decision that had to be made. We deliberated. We cast our ballots. It was close. But spending an hour discussing Manchester United's loss to Watford just missed out to discussing the Arsenal Hull match. So that's what we're going to do. This is the Arsenal Vision post match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Alas, we, uh, we voted, and, and I was outvoted. I wanted to do a podcast entirely on uh, Jose Mourinho losing three matches in a row at Manchester United. I'm not sure who voted the other way, but it was two to one. So your guess is as good as mine. Um, but we do have a lot of Arsenal stuff to discuss. The shocking uh, decision on who should take a penalty. The horrific concession of a goal. Don't worry, there's plenty of doom to go around in this match in what was generally a horrendous 4-1 to victory at Hull. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It was fun. We had fun. Uh, we even had fun watching Francis Coughlin. I'll admit it. I thought he was good. Um, as Paul sits there smugly smugging himself. No, no, uh, but, no, no. But let's introduce him first and do the professional thing. So that person saying no, 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 and talking before he's been introduced is Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Pause in My Pants. Hello, Paz. Woohoo! I'm a blogger again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. 
I'm not even <laughs> not even gonna uh, uh, qualify that as blogging. <laughs> dignify Paul, that. Dignify. Thank you. Yeah. If you if, if you haven't caught up with it, Paul is uh, blogging about his disdain for accounts that are paid to basically get retweets and tweet about betting sites. Um, if if you want to read about it, I, I strongly recommend you do. Um, Tim is here as well, uh, fresh back from the trip to Hull. Uh, basically just like Paris, only with a different outcome, right, Tim? Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. guess you could say that. Hull is kind of the Paris of England is what I've heard. It's close. It's close. It's close. Close. We'll take it. We'll take it. Um, and uh, by the way, you can find Tim on Twitter at Stilberto and read him all over the place. Okay. Uh, Tim is not currently blogging about a vendetta with paid for retweets. Tim's not an yet. actual Twitter. blogger. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's, tweet- he's blogging about stuff you might want to read. I'm kidding, Paul. It was an entertaining <laughs> read. It's an interesting topic. Can, but Can I tell you something? Um, Go compared to my. <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah. Forget what I was going to say. Yeah, Elliot, go fuck yourself. Thanks for that option. No, compared to my recent football blogs, this has been a blockbuster. (laughs) Yeah, I'm out of the football business. It's dead. Um, All right, well, enough of that. That was entertaining, but let's get to the game. So it's always difficult when you play. Hull's results have been decent, but the XG, the way they've played, a lot of the sort of analytics folks and the tactical folks have said they're, they're a tire fire waiting to happen that they could rival Derby County's point total at the end of the season. And so it is difficult when you go into a match against a team that really is totally uh, out of their depth and you play really well. How, how I mean, Obviously, you should enjoy it to the fullest, enjoy every great victory to the fullest. I mean, after all, we've lost to Bradford in recent times. We've lost to teams we should beat. So this was wonderful. But it's hard to know the conclusions you should draw. So the first thing that I just wanted to, to start with is, Tim... We talked on the last podcast about the possibility that Coughlin Cazorla was being chosen not so much um, as a preference over, for example, Shaka, but a preference for partnerships. And the manager seemed to hint at that in his pre-match press conference. What are your thoughts now integrating his comments into the thinking on selection and the fact that he, he stuck with Cazorla and Coughlin? I mean, clearly he could have he could have defended rotating at that point. They've They've already played a lot of football, but that just doesn't seem to be how it works now. Yeah, no, I, th- I thought his uh, his comments on Friday, this is one press conference, because I was off work, I actually got to watch it as live. Um, first time I've done that, I think. And um, it, it was very interesting, because I don't know if this was just a bit of a one-off, but I think as supporters, we're often very critical of journalists who have this great opportunity to speak to Arsene Wenger every week, and then end up asking him about completely trivial shite that, that we don't really care about. And actually... Um, they were very sharp on these questions, and I don't know if that's just, that happens all the time and we just don't really see it reported or whether this was just a one-off. But he was asked um, straight off the bat about Granite Jacker um, and about you know whether he would play him or not um, and, sorry, why he's not been playing him so far. And, and actually, Arson opened up a little bit on that with his comments about partnerships, and I think there's, there's clearly a lot in that. I think... Um, I think we saw in the game he quite likes the adaptability of the two at the moment. So what happened when Cazorla was booked and then on a warning in early in the second half, um, he swapped them round and he had Cazorla playing, uh, as you'd think, as as the partnership started really back kind of 18 months ago, with Cazorla playing higher up and Coquelin sitting deeper. 
because um, once Santi was caught up, caught out a couple of times, you know, he wanted to put him in a position where he was slightly less risky. Um, I still think if you look at Cazorla's individual stats, like he got dribbled past quite a lot, and you know he was he was on thin ice with um, in in terms of getting a second yellow card. So I'm not sure we can say it emphatically worked. I think Coquelin was incredibly impressive, um, but I th I think there is a little bit more behind it as well. I do think that you know we're we we're in a position where we've had to throw Mustafi straight in at centre half, and you know Giroud has not been available for fitness reasons, mental reasons, and now he's got a you've been a stupid dick, so you've been dropped injury. Um, sorry, a toe injury, um, and you know so that's quite a lot of change through the spine of the team, and I think possibly there's just he just looks at that Cocalancazola basis as as something pretty stable in a team that's that's changing quite a bit. I saw an interesting stat, actually, um, on Twitter, and I really forget who posted it, but someone posted the last 38 games that Coquelin and Cazorla have played together. Um, so, you know, a whole league season. And um, mm -hmm. it's 89 points um, with those two in midfield, which I, which I think is really interesting because that, that gets you pretty close to the league title. Um, I'd say that gets you the league title. Yeah, so I think it was 28 wins, five draws and five defeats. Um, so, you know, it's it's not perfect, but then you think it's, maybe we're just kind of spoiled as Arsenal fans because we remember like Vieira and Petit and Vieira and Gilberto and even Fabregas Flamini ended up for a season looking like a brilliant central midfield duo. And we remember all these great duos and, and actually we probably don't have anything really similar. Um, Coquelin Cazorla is certainly the closest we have. But then you look at squads elsewhere in the Premier League and Chelsea are still working their midfield out. You know, Fabregas doesn't really get in the team and Matic seems to have declined. And you look at, you know, Man United certainly haven't sorted their midfield out um, because of mm -hmm. this strange fetish for playing Wayne Rooney and long may that continue. <laughs> So it, it in maybe in this day and age we're just we, we're just entering an age of you know fluid squads and these partnerships don't really exist anymore. But I, I think there's a little bit more behind it in terms of um, him trying to not introduce too much transition into the spine just yet. I think maybe if Mertesacker had been fit, for example, it might have been Mustafi who'd been held back, or if Giroud was um, fit not mm -hmm. mentally weak and not a bit of a dickhead <laughs> in the discipline area. And You're going to leave there. me nothing to say <laughs> if you keep going down this path. I mean, what the hell's my um, brand going to be, Tim? Can you, can you tell I'm annoyed about that red card? Um, I certainly yeah. think the manager is. So, it, you know, it, I think Coquelin really worked. That really worked. I'm, I'm less convinced because Orla did. Um, really, and actually Hull did a lot of sitting off, and I think what you saw from Hull really was, actually they have kind of ridden their luck a little bit over the last couple of weeks, um, and they kind of, we saw them against Man United at home, and they just sat off, and that's what they tried to do to us, and so there wasn't an awful lot of pressure on our midfield, they were trying to sit deep. Um, that, you know, that said, Coquelin was arguably one of our best players well not, not arguably he was one of our best players it's arguable that he was our best player um on the day so um 
can't really have any complaints. But it was it was a weird game, wasn't it? Because it kind of felt like there were a lot of issues there, and yet we won four one. And the annoyance is that we didn't win by more, or at least that we weren't three or four nil up a lot earlier in the game. Yeah, I, I think this is one of those games you almost have to break it down by stanzas or by periods and take the temperature of how you felt in that period of the match. You know, the opening 30 minutes or even half where, you know, the opening 30 minutes where we played them off the park and we could have been hugely up and, and we we already had scored and, and we're feeling great. And then the period where we missed the penalty and we didn't convert some chances and we go into halftime with less of a lead than we should. And then the period where they get a man sent off, but we managed to let them back in the game and it's 2-1 and how infuriating that was. And then sort of putting our foot back down on the pedal again and, and winning the game. And, and in the ebb and flow of a match, you know, there, there were highs and there were lows. And certainly for a match we won comfortably in the end, there were, there were some lows in this match. But just, just to... to to finish on the the question of selection, and I, I think it's worth pointing out, you know, Hull sat back, and he, the, the blueprint used to be sit deep and counterattack, and you can beat Arsenal. Actually, before that, the blueprint was, uh, you know, set pieces and long balls into the box, and you can beat Arsenal. Then it was the sit deep and counterattack, and now it seems to be press the midfield, and if you press the midfield, you can beat Arsenal. Um, they didn't do that. They gave a space. Cochrane played 100 passes. Cazorla played 105 passes. Ozil played 110 passes completed at 98, 92, and 95%, you're going to lose when that happens. That's that's the recipe for how Arsenal absolutely slaughter you when you let those midfielders have that much of the ball, pass it that efficiently, and in that high volume. That's a sign that you're not getting the pressure on them that you need. And, Paul, my, my question to you is, first of all, uh, congratulations on Francis Coughlin playing fantastically well because I, I think some vindication was, was needed there. But how much... How much are you going to take away from this game in terms of the way the midfield performed as some kind of blueprint or indication that we're on the right track as opposed to coming up against a, a team that didn't have what it takes to, to challenge us in that area of the pitch? Okay, well, let me lose everybody with this first opening statement, which is I'm still kind of more impressed with the Coquelin Cazorla against PSG than maybe in this performance. I know that's really hard to to hear and to see, and it goes against the you know every fiber of everybody's being. But uh, at least I'm consistent, which is I really liked what they did. And you know, here we look at Hull. And... Well, well, tell me what you mean. Like, well, what did you like that they did in that match? That I, I mean, because I I obviously didn't see it. it um, I mean, I saw the match. It's I don't kind see. Of, yeah, it's kind of like the Rudyard Kipling thing. Uh, if, you know, all around you are losing their head. People have assumed that Coquelin and Cazorla were shit in that game, and they weren't. They just weren't. Well, so, so, uh, so what did you Cazorla see? Because this was, at... was a totally different type of match. There was no pressure in yeah. midfield. They weren't put under pressure. Yeah. They were able... I mean, if you look at their heat maps, and you, the Ozil-Cazorla heat maps lay right on top of each other about 30 yards out from goal, from Hull's goal. Their yeah. passing plots are all huge circles in the middle of the pitch about 30 yards out from goal. Is, sure. Was that the difference in why it looked so good, was just their ability to all occupy acres of space in the final third, basically? Yeah, they had, you know, when you give a team lots of space and that team's arsenal, we're going to look really good. doesn't mean we weren't really good. You can give lots of teams lots of space and they can't actually do very much with it. What I thought was really good in this game, because you could give a team loads of space and they trip each, over each other, uh, you have three or four players in the same 
part of the park like you would see with, say, you know, Cazorla, Ozil, and Alexis as Lexus pulls out of kind of doing a false nine thing. He kind of has that outstroke where he pulls out of the the uh, the center forward spot. And the only question for me with Sanchez is his in-stroke. Does he get back in onto the shoulder of the final of of their defender? Does he make the run in behind? And to Tim's point about uh, Arson talk giving some interesting snippets recently. He's, he said a couple of things that I think are really came to bear in this match. He talked about why he likes to play Alexis through the centre. And one of the reasons was because it takes all of that legwork off him for tracking back. And Wobi just has it. You, you know, you guys were saying that you don't see Wobi as a starting 11 player. And yet he is. And that's an indictment on us. And I get that. But man, he's so close. Mm. to being a valid starting 11 player if he didn't just jog back, yeah. track back, yeah. or be... The, the most frustrating thing for me was the three or four times he actually didn't jog back. He ran back, but didn't seem to think there was a use, a function, a purpose to running back. Just be back and you're done. It's kind of like you hang your your coat on the... Uh, you punched your time card. <laughs> yeah, and you go to your room, and you can say, you can say to your mom, oh, what do you mean I'm never home? You know, you're locked up in your room yeah. watching TV. Well, he was like, a, he, uh, I had a chat with somebody this morning, and they were saying, you know, uh, well, I don't know what they were saying. I know what I was saying. I was saying he's concluded the wrong thing. He thinks that the way he gets more starts is by being really good attacking. And I think that's a little bit less his problem than if he really worked out. You can see it in his body. You know where I'm going with that point. You, mm-hmm. you can see it in his body language. When he gets the ball or we get the ball in an attacking area, uh, that thing he does where he looks like he's tired, he's jaded, his his socks may not be around his ankles, but you feel they are. You feel it's like the 97th minute of the game, but it's actually the 32nd minute of the game. Suddenly we get the ball and he's all the business. He does that thing where he's pointing, to, you know, that thing he's doing with his arms where he's pointing to give him the ball or he's, you know, and around him is Ozil and Alexis and he thinks he should be getting the ball. He just comes alive and, he, he you know, he's pissed off. You see some people, some young players being down that they missed his shot. He wasn't really down he missed his shot. He just thinks he got robbed that he didn't get those two goals against PSG. Mm-hmm. He... Um, I thought it was the whole Alexis thing going up to break the news to him that he didn't score. Yeah. Uh, Alexis, you greedy bastard. You know, um, well, fine. He, he, it was almost like he ran up and decided to, you know, kind of squash a bug straight off. And then he grabs the ball for the penalty. You know, uh, Alexis is greedy, which is what you want out of a striker. Uh, you know, a Wobie... I'm not worried about a Wobie. It'll just make him hungrier to score next time. Mm-hmm. But that's the part of his game that's fine. So I thought what was... Uh, I don't know if I bought into it didn't work. Um, it, I, I thought it all worked against Hull, Hull in terms of the fr- that front three, front four kind of thing. Uh, Alexis creates a vacuum. Uh, Wobie comes and fills it. Uh, Theo pulls in a little bit from the right and makes that run in behind. I don't... The, problem with Alexis in the center forward spot is he won't always have a Wobie on one side and Theo on the other side you know things break and stuff so you're not they're not always going to come as a set of three as they didn't against PSG 
Um, so that's that's the fragility of it. Um, but it, the other thing I, I, I thought that comes out of that is you see, uh, you know, you talk about shot monsters, and we all know the stats that if you have a, a good center forward taking a lot of shots, eventually that turns into really good things. Mm-hmm. And I didn't look at the shots. But when you when you see that thing that the three of them are doing and you add in a Wobie's shots where he's cracking them in from all over the place, you add in Theo's shots where he's now got the kind of, he's got, he's got his dander up and you got Alexis popping shots. That's a lot of shots coming in from three different angles uh, that we haven't had previously. You can start to see where the goals will come from. If, if this is a trend that isn't just specific to Hull, you know, was it Hull? Did we play great? But then we, played Hull, but then we did, you know, it was 11 men, we played well against 11 men, but then it was 10 men, so we won't know till it's tested out, but that dynamic of the three of them, uh, but, and, a lo- you know, we've had goals over the last two games that pretty much came from guys taking pot shots, Iwobi um, or Theo, and, you know, people like Alexis feeding off the scraps, Ozo should have banged in that one, he banged over the top, etc., etc., so... There's a lot I like about it. I just don't know yet if it translates with any other player in the front three or against a tougher opponent. So anyway, that was my kind of take on that whole thing. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think the the thing that makes Iwobi unique in this team is he is that extra... He, he has the ability to pick the lock around the box and in the final third. And, you know, we have players like Alexis who who can do that as well, by the way, but, you know, wants to dribble, wants to have the ball at his feet... Um, beat a man. I think it will be just he's he's able to play the ball a little more quickly. The ball moves a little faster, certainly a lot faster than it does with Oxlade Chamberlain and Walcott on the wings. So I I think that that's something we we sort of miss. I mean, it's something Jack Wilshire actually kind of br- could bring when he was playing in a more advanced role for us. Um, hence that you know sort of the the famed Jack Wilshire Norwich goal, the little one twos on the edge of the area for you. Tim, what what is it? What are the qualities of Awobi's game in attack that have made him kind of a, a first choice wide forward at this point? Um, because he kind of does that. So broadly speaking, if you're playing with a front three, you want your two wide men. You want one of your wide men to be like a second striker, and that's Walcott. And you want one of your wide men to be the technical counterbalance who behaves a bit more like a winger but comes into midfield. So you want one wide man that's basically a second forward and one wide man that's almost like a fourth midfielder, a bit of a link. Like how we played when we were using Ramsey on the right, Alexis on the left. Alexis would would be the secondary, the the support striker, so to speak, and Ramsey would come into midfield. Exactly. And maybe a bit like when we had Nazari and Theo either side of RVP. Yeah, exactly. And and what do those front threes have in common? They all worked. And um, I I really like this um, incarnation of the front. Well, sorry, I like these three as the front three. Um, I liked, you know, Alexis, Awobi, and Welbeck a lot. Um, of this front three, I might still have Theo in the centre and Alexis wide. Um, and effectively, because effect, either way, right, you've got Alexis and Walcott who are basically a front two. That's that's what they're there for, to play almost as a, a weird lopsided strike partnership. My, my kind of problem with Alexis is that, um, yeah, all right, he drops out into, you know, more of a number 10 area. 
Um, and, and I don't think, I think that's affecting Ozil's game at the moment. But to stick with Awobi, um, he has that nice, like, velvety, gliding, you know, that, that kind of... He does the kind of thing that Robert Perez used to do. He comes in off that flank, he joins up, he, he's provocative. So the second he gets that ball, he's moving towards the area, he's looking up and he's going, where's my pass? And I don't care if it's for a 1-2, whether it's me putting you through on goal, whether it's me spreading the ball wide. Like I, I don't care about any of that. But when he, he, he makes other players react when he has the ball, basically. He's a provocateur. Um, and that's a quality we've really, really missed out wide for a long, long time. Um, because as you said, players like Chamberlain aren't really like that. That's not Walcott's game either. Um, and it just kind of fits together a little bit better um, as a front three, particularly if, like Arsenal, you like to keep the ball on the floor and you like to keep the ball moving. And I think to your point as well, Elliot, about him moving the ball quickly and looking for that link-up play. So he's not just capable of beating players and going both ways on his right and left foot. But, you know, he, he doesn't just make other players make runs. He You know, he's very capable of playing those lovely one-twos on the edge of the box. And if you look at some of our goals in the last two games, you know, he's taken up some good goal-scoring positions. So the PSG um, for Alexis's goal, you know, it was him that got the shot off in a very similar um, position to where he was when you know his shot deflected in off Alexis for our first goal against Hull. So he's he's mm. kind of got that second striker, fourth midfielder thing down really quite nicely, um, and that that's the type of player we've been looking for. But yeah, I mean I, I completely agree with the comments about his defensive. Well, I put contribution in um, inverted commas. Um, and I again, I, I shared that annoyance of him running back and thinking that that's that my friend and I we were commenting on exactly that, um, particularly in the first half where he was that you know you're kind of in the corner at Hull on mm. basically we were behind Monreal um, for the first half and Nacho had um, a long long word in his shell like when the teams were coming out for the second half he had a long conversation with him. Um, and I don't think it takes a genius to work out what he was saying. Mm -hmm. But yeah, other, but other think... than that, a, you know, a, a fabulous, probably more than anyone else. Um, and the reason I say he's a starting 11 player is because he's just got qualities that none of our other options have at all. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Paul, anything to add on, on a will be and why, yeah, just... why he works in that front three? Well, more, uh, what I liked about the fact that in if you take the last two games, even though that one of them is the PSG game and we're kind of we're still burnt by it, if you take the better periods of play, if you think of of uh, the teams we're matching up against, thinking about where the threats came in the last two games, you got Walcott, uh, Iwobi, and Sanchez, all of which any team facing us now will think. They're going to take shots. They're going to make runs. They're going to put us under pressure. And they kind of can't leave, leave them. I mean, they can't ignore them. Whereas if you look at the run-in for the end of last year, I don't think Theo was scaring anybody. I think he could make those runs all day long. And defences would kind of go with him, but kind of not, because he hadn't hurt anybody in like 10 games. Uh, Sanchez stuck out on the wing. You know, t teams seemed to feel they kind of had him in that pocket. Uh, Awobi was good, but but wasn't 
you know, beating him up the way he is over the last few games. So one of the things these three players giving you, t- taking pot shots, breaking free, crosses in from the right from Theo and from Bellerin, is now defences have to follow every run. They have to mark three players, believing that I- any one of these will hurt. And that's what makes the holes that players like Coquelin, Iwobi, Ozil, etc., made through the middle, and even the holes for Theo, and the holes the holes for the passes to reach them. When they're, when they're scared enough of the threat, suddenly the holes get bigger, not smaller, despite their efforts to stay close. So that's kind of, I, I think Hull will help us that way. I think going into the games, teams are going to be, we've got to watch this, we've got to watch that. We, you know, the, we will pull out the centre-back when, when Alexis pulls out of the middle. Theo will pull a couple of players with him when he makes that run that we didn't put a ball through, whereas I think for 10 games or whatever towards the end of last season, when Theo would make those runs, teams kind of let him go. Yeah, I, I think all that is fair. And, and, and you, you just need to look at the positioning. What I think is so interesting is you look at the opening goal and Walcott and Iwobi are out on the wings. And then you look at the, the goal that Walcott scores that's assisted by Iwobi, and they're basically standing on top of each other in the midfield. And... I thought that was a feature of the game is that in possession, we often started to take sort of this 4-2-3-1 shape where Ozil, Walcott, and Iwobi are standing fairly centrally on the edge of the area with Alexis just in front of them. Um, you know, and and that's when you see how important Iwobi is, right? Because he's the guy that's going to get the ball on the edge there and look to put Iwobi and Ozil, right, are the two guys that are going to facilitate for, for Alexis and Theo in that spot. I I just think it's it's a really interesting dynamic, and the the thing that's so unfortunate is if Iwobi was a little bit more aware defensively, you'd feel really good about it, but, but because he's not, you know, it does create a situation where we're going to have a lot of really good attacking play that, that goes through him, but we're also going to find ourselves easily exposed on the wing, and I thought that happened a little bit too much throughout the game. Let, let's get to the penalty really quickly. Um, and, and I think the, the most interesting thing about the penalty is just that Alexis chose to take it. And, Tim, this is one of those things, right? I mean, on the one hand, you can't really complain about your best player taking your penalties. But on the other hand, Santi Cazorla is the penalty taker. I mean, how dimly do you view this kind of stuff happening at Arsenal in the sense that that either there isn't a plan or there's a plan that isn't followed or there's too much freelancing or however you want to say it. I mean, I don't want to make – this is probably more Tempest in a teapot than anything else but or teacup. But, I mean, Cazorla is the penalty taker. The manager nominally kind of reiterated that after the match, and Alexis chose yeah. to take it. Big deal, little deal, no deal? It's a little deal, but I, I think you're right. It does speak to a little bit. You know, I think it's important to emphasize because it doesn't get emphasized that Wenger giving his players freedom – you know, to interpret, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It does have upsides. It has big upsides, um, and very often we only ever focus on the downsides of it. It has big upsides, particularly for the kind of game we want to play. But this is one of those scenarios where it has a bit of a downside. Where, first of all, I mean, on one hand, if you look, if you've got a striker who's scoring goals, feeling confident, and he wants to take a penalty. And, and, you know, he puts it in, it's no big deal. But I think my issue with it is a little bit threefold. So I, I don't have as much problem perhaps with Alexis saying I'd like to take it as I do Santi Cazorla letting him. You know, if I was Cazorla, I'd kind of say, 
look, in my time as Arsenal's penalty taker, I've missed one, and that was when I fell over. So, you know, mitigating circumstances. Basically, a goalkeeper has not saved one of my penalties. So, piss off, it's mine. <laughs> Whereas, you know, yeah. you've missed one. And I know Alexis, look, Alexis Penenko's won in the Copa America final in the biggest moment in his country's footballing history. So, he, he has form there. But, the... I think the fact well, he's not that, he's not our penalty taker and our penalty yeah, takers on the pitch. I mean I, that's isn't it that kind of that simple? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think the fact that Santi is such a good penalty taker and and quite nerveless in that respect and the fact that Alexis ended up taking such a poor penalty and it it looked like it really lacked confidence. That was what, you know, usually when a player marches up and says I'm having it I remember Emmanuel Abue doing that in a game against Blackburn once. And, <laughs> you know, he'd just scored and we were 3-0 up in stoppage time. So it's a bit like, go on, whatever. But he was very much like, right, no, this is mine. Put it down. And the way he stroked in, there was just no doubt whatsoever. Whereas, you know, it, it was a bit odd for Alexis to be ballsy enough to take it off of, off of the allotted taker and then to take such a weird awful awful penalty and um i i have i have less problem with alexis saying he wants it than santi gazola not telling him to piss off basically fair enough i mean look i don't think is there any chance it's a cultural thing just slightly in that alexis hasn't really played the striker role by the way i agree with everything you say but alexis hasn't really played the striker role and in some places you know, the striker is the guy who takes the penalties. And so here he is. I don't know if he's had a penalty while he's been striker, but here he is kind of almost the first time he's played center forward, not quite. Penalty comes up and he's like, oh, uh, strikers take penalties, kind of, I'm the main man. And while I don't think that's sufficient and okay, maybe that's not actually the culture any, anywhere. I just wonder if that was a little bit of the momentum of he's the man, he's the striker. He's the guy who scores goals, and actually, this is kind of a new situation for him to actually be striker for us as opposed well, he, to... Well, he'd already break. scored, right? I mean, they just had a man yeah. sent off. He's probably thinking, I can fill my boots today, and if I want to go yeah. on and, you know, really... And I'm the striker, though. And I'm the striker. Now, I, I, maybe I it's a bullshit there's another theory, element to this, I, too. I think, it might have, I think it might have gone to his head, the I'm the striker. Maybe. Basically. I don't know. I You know, you could, you could get into that armchair psychology any day. I, I, just, I just think... I never climb out of that chair. No, that's a good chair to be in. Um, But, but I think, let's face it, Santa Cazorla wouldn't probably wouldn't tell you to leave his house if you just showed up there and went to sleep on his couch, let alone telling you to piss off when you want to take a penalty. I mean, so, I, you know, you talk about demeanor. I mean, Alexis is the uh, tigerish. Um, unless, unless you're talking about the Santi Cazorlo played against Hull. Yeah. <laughs> he was great. He was a little bargy, wasn't he? <laughs> I, was a, I was afraid of him. Yeah. Um, all right. So, I mean, we, we, we take a 2-0 lead. They have, they're down a man. And I think this is something that has just irritated people, which is our... our either unwillingness or inability to kick teams when they're down and really go on and, and make a big win out of it. And I still question if there are, I mean, I know we just scored four, but you know, one was a worldie from a guy who's not really in the team and, and the manager has no plans for in Shaka. Um, kidding. Kidding. Uh, you know, one was a penalty. Well, no, we didn't make that. But, but the, the point is that I just think, I still wonder if there are enough goals in the side and if there are enough, you know, pure goal scorers in there. And we did have a lot of easy opportunities presented to us. We we didn't really make the most of it. And then 
as we are wont to do, we get caught two goals up on the counter. Check. I mean, old rules. Check's probably sent off, and it's two one ten ten men on ten men. But as it happens, Paul, I mean, how frustrating is it for you to see a team like Arsenal, who who so overmatches this whole side eleven v eleven, but eleven v ten have the sort of typical naive moment of, oh, we're having fun, we're playing football, we're attacking them, this is great, and just totally caught on the counter and wind up putting ourselves under pressure again. Yeah, I don't know. You're probably, you're probably yeah, asking the wrong man, I guess. I'm so conditioned to it at this stage. It's kind of like that abuse trauma that uh, I kind of think it's... PTSD? Yeah. yeah, I kind of think it's normal, and the managers kind of talk me into it being normal. I mean, he, he will often say how at 2-1 up, the problem was we didn't have that extra goal. Um, I don't always say that, and sometimes we play more cautiously. We throw on all the fullbacks. But I always think throwing on all the full, fullbacks is because he doesn't have his preferred option available to him on the pitch or uh, on the bench. And he really does genuinely believe the solution to 2-1 up is 3-1 up. Or if it's 2-0, 3-0. And, you know, maybe statistically he's right. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are teams who control a game better than we do, uh, who control a game state better than we do. I'm not saying it's, it's nirvana, it's perfection. But for the team we have and where we're at, it might actually be a reasonable strategy most of the time. Of course, sometimes it utterly bites us in the ass. Um, I wonder, and I'm probably wrong on this, if we aren't somewhat traumatized by the horrendous, you know, four zero to four four, the the three zero to three three, the going out and getting whacked five zero and six, you know, those in some ways those are just games. Well, I guess I, I look at it this way, They're Paul. Not. I, I think I think we have two modes: attack with very little attention to defending, and sit deep and defend with very little attention to attacking. But, like, there is a way we used to win games back in back in the day where you just pass the ball around your midfield and hold them at bay like, you know, a little brother trying to punch a big brother and you just got his hand on his forehead. I mean, sure. we could have just, yeah. you know, kept, kept the fullbacks. I, I, think that's very, I think that's right. I, I agree with that. I think that's what Wenger wishes we were good enough to do. That's why we never hear about all this mid, you know, defensive drilling that we don't do because – in his scheme of things, I think in Guardiola's, in Cruyff's scheme of football, the answer is a more secure midfield, a more secure possession. Yes. It's, not, it's not shoring up the defense. Unfortunately, as we talked about a few things last year, I think the issue for Arson, my probably my biggest criticism of all is not tactically or anything else, it's that he hasn't made sure he's had the squad's depth and quality to back his vision of how... I don't think he's a stupid... People seem to think he's stupid, that his ideas are totally outmoded. I don't think anybody thinks he's stupid, for the record. Uh, Well, I see people all the time who try to convince other people he's lost the plot, he's stupid, he doesn't get it anymore. Well, I mean, that's... Uh, You know know what I mean. I think there are people that may be frustrated with with his current ideas and approach, but uh, you'd be nuts to say the man's stupid. Okay, but I do think people think he's outmoded. And he's outdated. And in that sense, he ain't as sharp as he used to be. 
And I understand that. Uh, but my criticism is less that it's more arson. If you're going to do this, do not come back after the summer window without the players you need to, to be good enough yeah. to do it your way. Great if point. You want it, uh, uh, that's, to me, that's the classic frustration I have with Arsene. If you want to do that, have the players. And signing a keeper two windows ago, two, two, you know, I guess you could say two summers ago, and no other outfield player, take some chutzpah. You better have the players. And we hoped he had, but he didn't. Yeah. And yeah. we bought a few players this summer. Very good players. I think they get us very, very close to what we need. In January, February, or March, we'll look around and say, do we have enough players to play at Arson's way? Because if we don't, then we'll start looking stupid when people start banging in goals. Yeah. So it's not the, it's not the philosophy for me. Uh, we may be found out this year against Guardiola if, you know, if he's that good, if he has raised the level to, to that level. The, you know, then I would have to come back and say Arson hasn't kept pace with the times. But up until this year, I would say the issue was Arson didn't give himself the depth uh, of squad he needed for him to play the way, for him to be able to defend his philosophy. Yeah, he, he didn't give himself the resources to, to implement the philosophy that he, he seemed to be adapt, or adopting or continuing yeah, to and, adopt and in that sense kind of jeopardize the whole program which is which and, is on him also but that you know look yep. another another topic for another day so another tim topic for another you day. you were there what was the mood after they they got their goal i mean because i weirdly and you know me i'm i'm prone to hysteria i was not nervous i was not concerned because i just felt that we had enough threat on the day to 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 continue to to push our advantage and ultimately get through it but was was there a lot of frustration and nervousness when they when they got a goal back? Not really, no. I, th- I think there was a slight feeling, oh, God, here we go again. And I think, um, to Paul's point, we're all still scarred by St. James's Park um, in particular. And there was, mm. you know, a big element of, oh, God. But I don't, the thing is, I don't think it was based on anything that was happening in the game. It was based on history. That was entirely what it was. Because I'm with you. I was thinking... Well, given the pattern of this game, I, you know, I, I also thought, yeah, we, we've definitely got another gear here that we've been keeping in reserve for a good 30 minutes or so. And it didn't feel like that goal came about because of any great pressure. It was just a fairly typical Arsenal, oh, we've won the game, we'll switch off for a minute and not bother closing down and, oh, look, he's through one-on-one, oh, well, never mind kind of thing. <laughs> and I, I tended to think, well, they're, they're probably not going to keep that up. And with Hull down to 10, and I didn't sense that Hull, basically I didn't sense that there was enough momentum for Hull um, to to really, really make a game of it. You know, obviously I'm nervous, but we we put that to the sword pretty quickly. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that's that's very, very pleasing. It did kind of suggest to me we could have done that 20 minutes ago because we've pretty much scored at will, and there is a big part of me that thinks, why didn't we just do that on like 60, 65 minutes so that the inevitable, oh, whoops, we've not bothered to track back, and now they're one-on-one. So when that happens at 4-0 instead of 2-0, and actually I I think this is a a habit that's always, always, always run through Wenger's teams of not really putting teams to the sword when we can. You look at um, the Invincibles, 
there aren't many uh, wins of more than three goals if you go back through the results. Um, there's very, very few, and there were many, many times when Arsenal were three, four nil up at half time, and usually it finished three or four one because we'd pretty much stopped playing. And there, there is um, a logic to that because it's a long season, and if you've got one game won, you know, don't break yourself trying to win it by six goals instead of five and then leave yourself short for the next one. But I didn't get the sense that that's what this was against Hull, really, because, you know, we were playing a bit of keep ball, but I think we could have played it much higher up the pitch um, and probably popped in another couple of goals. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I I don't think that, um, that anxiety really had time to germinate because of how quickly we went 3-1 up. But no, I didn't. Yeah, I totally agree. I didn't. I think if that had gotten to 90 minutes at 2-1, yes. the board goes up and there's four minutes, I, I think it could have been a little bit of a, yeah, a shit-your-pants finish. And and they've got a goal kick or something. You think, oh, here we go. Then, you know, here we the go. definitely yeah. coming here. But I, I, I was I was relatively – I was well, no, I was more than relatively pleased with the way we shot that down quite quickly. But it did make me think there was definitely room to do that 20 minutes ago. Yeah, I I think it's interesting. I, I think the whole the whole way we played that game is interesting in, in that, you know, you look at the, the number of passes we completed, you look at the number of shots we had, the dynamic was just totally different from what we've seen this season in some ways. I mean, we completed two dribbles the whole game. I think one was Cazorla and one was Alexis. Um, usually we're a very dribbly side. You know, Ox wants to dribble and Alexis wants to dribble. And this was a one-touch passing, move the ball quickly kind of game. Um and I always think we're better when we do that. And maybe that's Awobi's contribution. And maybe that's also the byproduct of having a lot more space to work with. Um, I think what's challenged us this season is our spacing has been pretty terrible. Um, and so when we're pressed in midfield, there aren't a lot of options. And players are trying to dribble out of trouble and, and play long, longer balls and things like that. This, this looked and felt a lot more like the way you think of Arsenal football. Um, so Alexis gets... The, the third goal, four minutes after they score the penalty, and he gets it from a piece of very composed finishing, but it starts with um, a really nice ball through to Theo. And Theo showed some really good strength to get it and pace to get in behind, you know, stay strong, collect the ball, and get a shot off, which ultimately the rebound falls to Alexis, and he, he finishes it with composure. I think Walcott has obviously been a lightning rod, and I, I think a lot of the criticism he's come in for recently has been fair but it's been a better showing from him already this season he started last season well and I think he started this season pretty well too Paul this this is a player you have a lot of time for I know and, and a player that I have preferred to Giroud in the past because I like the way we play when he's there how important do you think Iwobi's involvement is to Walcott looking better and, and generally what did you think of him on the day uh thought it was very good on the day uh, I needn't say too much on Theo. I think the debate, uh, you know, I hear Tim in terms of Theo playing through the middle. Uh, right now, for his mental well-being, playing him on the right where he knows all his angles, I think we know what we're meaning here in terms of runs and, sh you know, mm -hmm. that this is geography he knows like the back of his hand. Uh, he's building up his confidence. Wenger talked about him uh, you know, but not being 100% yet. Now, it can't be fitness. I know he had a little knee, knee issue the other day. Maybe it could be fitness. Uh, but I took it as 
you know, it's the issue of him rebuilding his confidence after the the fiasco of last season, which I would blame on him getting all wound up about his poor form with the Euros uh, looming. He just kind of managed to get himself into some kind of mental tailspin because we've never really seen that from him before. Uh, we'd always said if he stays fit, you know, he, t- he tends to go on an upward spiral and lock down his, his place. And here we are this year looking like the Theo that I was arguing for uh, last season. Um, the Iwobi factor, I think, is very, very significant really for Theo and for Alexis at centre forward. I think it's it's a big piece of it. The three play really well together. Um, w- maybe we'll see it next weekend against Chelsea, which will be an even better test of it. But I think I think uh, we all know where Iwobi tends to play. I, uh, the the one twos, the give and goes, the but also the running at the centre of the defence is a big deal because that opens holes. The taking pot shots, which we've seen over the last few games from Wobi, you know, if you take the right shots at the right time. Uh, those aren't wasted shots, even if it's a goalkeeper parrying it, even if it's saved, even if it's a corner. So there's some maturity in cho- shot selection. I think Iwobi's got for a... What age is he now? 20, 20 19? 20. 20. 20. You know, for a 20-year-old, his maturity in front of goal, because you can see he's as greedy as hell. He wants to score goals. Uh, and maybe it's his talent allows him to keep up with his greed, but actually he hasn't been profligate. He hasn't... The the shots he's taken nine times out of ten, you'd say, you know, good call. Maybe he could have laid it off to somebody, but only with the eyes in his head kind of thing, or watching it on the sofa beside me, would he necessarily see a player he would should lay it off to. So I think he's been been very impressive. And again, I'm particularly geeked about the three of them taking their shots because I, I think that puts a lot of pressure on a defense and changes the mindset from a ticky-tacky, play it around in a circle kind of thing. Take those shots when you get them, but to take those shots, you need to make the holes, and that's what Alexis, Iwobi, and maybe to a slightly lesser extent, Theo have done with their movement. So I think it all really plays well together. Let's yep. see it against uh, Chelsea. Yeah, that, that would be great. I, so... We we get the three one lead and it's time to bring on subs and uh, the the first guy on is Shaka for Cazorla, um, and he gets to work forty nine touches forty six passes ninety one percent completion eight long balls two key passes two shots and a world class goal, um, you know he he sort of as we'd say in American sports filled up the stat sheet while he was on the pitch and you know he just. He he oozes class. I mean, he is a different kind of player from Coughlin for sure. Let me ask you this, Tim. Do you think that it, it was pointed by the manager, that it was in a very intentional? I mean, obviously every decision is intentional, but very intentional that he went with Shaka and Coughlin and not Shaka and Cazorla uh, in this case, knowing sort of the desire people have to see Shaka start and the pressure that he's getting in press conferences to explain it. Do you think this is his way of saying Shaka is not a Coughlin substitute? I, I know that Cazorla and, and Shaka started together against Watford, but but do you think that there was something to that? Uh, no, I think it was 
entirely governed by the fact that Cazorla was on a booking and um, and it had a bit of has a played a lot of football. Well. <laughs> yeah, has played yeah. A lot of, I mean, he's thirty-one years old and he's he's playing every you know every three days right now. Yeah, and you know, like like I said earlier, Cazorla was getting dribbled past quite a lot, and you know he had that that, that yellow card for that pretty crunching foul. And then, you know, he had a couple of incidents, I mean, and the whole players were trying to get him sent off. And, you know, you're away from He home. really did have two, there really were two big moments where he could have got another yellow. Yeah. And he did look frazzled, didn't he? Yeah, and, you know, you're away from home, and the ref has just sent, has sent someone off from the home team. And quite yeah. often they look to even up. Um, I mean, I don't know if you remember the Watford game, I thought that, we, we got a penalty in the first kind of six or seven minutes and it felt like the referee was on his knees apologising to Watford for the whole game. Like he really had to, I'm so sorry I, I applied the rules correctly um, in their favour so early <laughs> in the game. And you, you often get that away from home. Um, and I, I think Wenger was just fearing um, a red card um, I mean that said. Well, if they the, can, if they can even it up, they like to, right? I mean, I was kind of exactly. shocked that Czech didn't get sent off, but it's really the new application of the rules. Indeed, it, it was great the way Czech plastered him. What is that thing he does? It was like he he was like went two dimensional flat. He plastered down. It's brilliant. I mean, it worked. The referee didn't give the penalty. No, it was the linesman. That I thought, what's he doing? He was like a like a rug, you know, like a one of those tiger rugs in front of the fireplace. He was just completely flat, lay there for two seconds, then gets up. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we we are getting more, certainly more refereeing decisions going our way than I can ever remember. And um, that's that's quite possibly a symptom of having um, a front three that moves around a little bit more. Um, yeah. You know, you, you look at. I mean, to be fair, Giroud's won us a penalty um, this year and, and the most important one of the lot. But um, kind of, that's often my problem with Giroud, that he doesn't use his physique enough to provoke those situations, particularly in the penalty area. But if you've got, you know, you've got Walcott, you've got Alexis who's won um, one penalty this season. You know, you've got three nippy forwards zipping around. Um, you are much more likely to get penalties than if you've got a fairly static kind of front three waiting for things to happen. Yeah. Did you make anything of uh, Shaka's goal celebration, Tim? Um, well, apparently he was asked to explain it and he said it was about um, the criticism he's been getting because he's quite um, straight that he would play for Kosovo um, and he's been getting some criticism from the Swiss press and uh, apparently he he himself explained it that way. So that was aimed at the Swiss press. I mean, um, I, I I never thought that it was aimed at you know like the manager or anything no, like no, that. No. But yeah, um, and and overall impressions of of his performance while he was on. I mean, what do you see that he bring he brought to the game that maybe we don't get from a Cazorla or a Coughlin? Um, just that ability to spread the ball around and you know just really kind of give us give us a different dimension so that our build you know it's it's not quite pumping the long ball you know it's a bit more precise than that but and again particularly when you've got fairly nippy a fairly nippy front three all three of those players are quick and all three of them are capable of playing on the shoulder so if you've got a guy like granite jacker who can you know you can hit them over the top um you know all the better particularly if we play against teams that try and squeeze space because i think the good thing about about jacker is no matter how you play 
if you've got a team that tries to squeeze you up the pitch, he can just drop the ball over the top. And whereas if you've got a team that sits off, then you know he can make those line-breaking passes. Basically, he can. He's a good passer with the side of his foot, and he's a good passer with the laces. He's a good long and short passer, and that's um, that's a big, big weapon for us. And you know, for people who remember Emmanuel Petit in uh, Arsenal central midfield, and at that time, you know, we had Mark Overmars and Nicholas Anelka. Um, very, very nippy kind of forwards who loved running on to, to his, his kind of balls over the top. And then if um, if defenders tried to sit off because they were wary of that, then we had Bergkamp and now we have Ozil. So it's it's kind of a, a similar kind of setup. It's either um, you sit off, in which case I'm going to go and find Ozil, or you come forward and I'm going to stick the ball over the top of you. And I think he's a fantastic attacking weapon. Don't think I've seen enough yet to judge how good um, he is defensively. Perhaps when we've got our backs against the wall, perhaps when we're playing a team who's going to have a bit more possession. That um, I'm open-minded about because I just haven't seen it yet. But certainly I think he really, really adds something, um, not just to our build-up play. I think that simplifies it too much. I think literally to our attack because he can feed our front four straight off the bat in any any way, shape or form. And that's... Um, that's something we've missed for a long, long time, I yeah. think. Yeah, I, it's it's definitely a little of that Arteta contribution from when he first came to the club. Um, I, it's so difficult to judge us defensively, obviously, on the back of this because we were hardly challenged. I think the XG for Hull was 0.2 plus penalty. Um, I still think there may be some questions there. I'm not sure what to make of Mustafi yet and certainly not sure what to make of his partnership with Koscielny. I don't think that's super... Uh, reassuring at the moment. And if we are going to continue with Iwobi in the side, which I assume we will, I think we're going to continue to see trouble for uh, Bellerin or Nacho, depending on which side he's on, you know, being exposed. So we'll get more of a test next week, and let's get to that really quickly. Come, coming off a big win, we'll play uh, Forrest, is that right? Yeah. In, in the cup, and I believe, do we face Nick Bentner? Yes. So that, that should be fantastic and brilliant and wonderful. But let's skip that for a minute. Paul, just quick look ahead to Chelsea. In the context of this season, I mean, we, there's an interesting uh, t- uh, two statistical pictures, uh, data visualizations, whatever you want to call it, charts. How about that? There are two charts that I uh, retweeted, and they show our expected goal difference in same games so far from last year to this year, and I think we're minus seven expected goals. Um and the expected goals for and expected goals down have, have basically flipped. We haven't been playing well. We we played well at the weekend. How important is the Chelsea match now in terms of really becoming a, a compass for the, the direction that we're moving right now? I, I think we've kind of gotten away with it. The Southampton performance wasn't convincing. The PSG performance was, was just pretty bad, but the result was there. This was better. Is the Chelsea match a critical sort of early season defining moment for our direction? Yeah, I think I think it's a pretty big deal. And it'll be a pretty big deal for the supporters and their relationship with the manager. Um, I think there'll be a lot of frustration if uh, we don't at least get a draw and look like we should have won. Uh, if we get a poor draw or a loss, uh, it's not going to help that uh, manager-supporter well, not to mention just that it sort of, in that 
sense, I think, confirms the fear that the team is not moving in the right direction, right? I mean, would you yeah, say that right but, now, but I am t- Hall I am aside, talking. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I am talking to uh, – I realize I'm kind of answering a separate point, but I think it's a, a big point for the season because we're all going to have to coexist, us, the manager, the team. And there will be a few games in which the barometer isn't just about the performance. I think that, you know, from a footballing standpoint, uh, we haven't been playing particularly well. My general feeling on that was we haven't really put out a team that ought to have played particularly well. And that shouldn't limit your performance. There are ways around that. But on the flip side, we put out a good team against Hull. Yes, it was just Hull. Uh, you know, my big complaint against PSG was we didn't have a very uh, impactful front three that worked, and certainly not in that scenario. We did against Hull. Uh, assuming we put out a good 11 against Chelsea, and I'm sure we we shall, uh, I think it's a very good test and one we should be able to do well with. And, you know, for the challenges of Awobi with Montreal, one of the things I've been very heartened with is... Theo and Bellerin have looked to form an actual partnership as opposed to Theo kind of gesturing and getting the hump with Bellerin and kind of treating him like the junior kid as he tended to do, I think, mm-hmm. a season or a season and a half ago. Uh, the wings will be really important against Chelsea for obvious reasons, that wing in particular. Um, so, I mean, you don't know what you're going to get at this stage because we've only... If we saw a really good Arsenal against Hull, we only kind of saw it the once. And everywhere else, you kind of have to piece together fragments of games or fragments of a unit within a team within a game to say, well, actually, there's been more good play this year. I do think there's been other good play this year, but you really do have to stitch it together from from the pieces. Um, So Hull's a... Hull's a big deal. Or sorry, Chelsea's a big deal. Yeah, on the, if, uh, only Hull, if only Hull just, was a big deal. Go ahead, Tim. Just a really, a really quick point on the Bellerin-Walcott partnership, actually. I, I think that's a really good point. Something um, to look out for, uh, if you haven't already noticed it, is that Bellerin is coming in field to collect the ball. from. The, he's, he's actually not playing very wide. Mm. He's coming in. A bit like, you know, it's been highlighted about the way Guardiola uses his ball backs, and Bellerin has been doing something very similar. He comes in field a little bit to collect the ball. Um, so that Theo doesn't have to, so that it's it's very much like, yeah, Bellerin's comfortable collecting the ball, redistributing it. You know, he grew up as a midfielder at Barcelona. He's fine with that. Um, we don't want Theo doing that. We don't want Theo collecting the ball off of midfielders. We want him on the shoulder of the fullback all the time. So actually Bellerin's been um, playing less like a fullback and actually coming in field um, quite a bit, which has been quite interesting, something to look for. Because you, you always used to talk about the Sanya... Theo yeah. relationship and how Sanya kind of underwrote Theo's ability to stay forward. And Theo's doing a lot more these days. Yeah. I mean, he's mm-hmm. actually kind of uh, washing the dishes and and uh, tidying around the house these days. But uh, how do you compare and contrast Sanya versus, say, where Bell? How, where Bellerin has found his current accommodation with Theo? Yeah, I, I, I think there's something quite similar there. I mean, Sanya was more like... Um, you know, to the point about wide players earlier, you want like one to be like a midfielder and one to be like a forward. And in your fullbacks, you kind of want one to be a, like a winger and one to be like a third centre half. And Sanya was more in that mould. But yes, I mean, he, he kind of ran 
the first three quarters of that line so that Theo only had to do the last quarter. And I think what Bellerin's doing is similar. It's slightly different. He's coming in um, a little bit more, uh, which is probably a symptom of having Ozil as well, who likes to kind of occupy those wide spaces. But, um, you know, so they're, they're, they're in their little kind of triangle there. But I, I think it's, it's something similar, certainly. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's I, in... I, I, Go we ahead. didn't really talk about it. Sorry to cut across the others, but while while we're not very good against the press and Hull didn't press us, I wonder if part of it wasn't the kind of symptomatic of uh, the Cockleham piece where he and our team in general were pressing really high up the pitch. Maybe we're not brilliant at it, but that particular group of players with Iwobi, Alexis, Theo believe it or not, and Coquelin did seem to get their pressing groove on and maybe that had nothing to do with Hull kind of being pushed back and not pressing but in the pressing wars against Hull, maybe nothing to brag about um, it, it seemed like we were actually doing something There was, it wasn't purely opportunistic that the front four or five, whoever you want to group into that, had said right, let's Let's use this tactic. Let's work together. If if one of us pushes it, be it Alexis or Theo, we're all in it. And they were, I thought, pretty effective at it. Yeah, uh, I, I guess. I, look, I, I, up the pitch. I don't know. I, I, my criticism of the match, if I had one, would be that I thought our press was pretty mediocre and pretty man-oriented. I just thought Hull were really, really poor um, in that respect on the ball. Um, but look, I, we'll we'll see. Well, the, screw the, you. <laughs> the ch- the challenge is coming with respect to Chelsea, and yeah, I'll level with you guys. And, and for anybody listening, I'm really nervous about that game, and I think it could go really wrong. Um, I have a really really bad feeling about it. So, you know, I I hope they prove me wrong. I I I think we are playing pretty abysmal football, and I'm worried that the mirage of Hull will fade away into a really poor performance and result against Chelsea. And I would love to be wrong. Um, but that's where my mindset is. And I, I do think it's a crucial match, not just for the reasons you said, Paul, but because I think it is our first chance to show that we can play coherent, effective football at both ends of the pitch um, against quality opposition, which we, we haven't done yet. It's um, um, very, very quickly, just to add to that, with one slight point, um, it's very important for our confidence at home as well because our home form has actually been quite average for over a year now. Um, you saw the manager just said, right? About the manager just away. said we're better... Yeah, we're better yeah. on the road. Yeah, and our, our home form hasn't been great, and I think we need a little bit of confidence at home. We need, you know, a result a bit like Man United last season, where we were then able to go and beat Bayern Munich and have a little burst. Um, I, I think this this would really help that. Yeah, and and I mean, look, some of this is also predicated on the fact we haven't had great luck against Chelsea in general. Diego Costa is kind of had the, our number to some extent in terms of at least winding up our players and, um, you know, Eden Hazard's in decent form. I, I think tactically the way they play could be a foil for what we want to do, and, and it, we'll see. It's an important match. Um, I think it's interesting, you know, coming off the euphoria of, hey, we made some signings, we spent some money in the summer. You know, Lucas Perez now looks kind of firmly in the El Neni category of squad player who will play the odd time here or there now maybe it's just about oh, way too early come betting on. in period come on, I get that. Come on. My, my guess all right real quick paul uh over under starts in the premier league i'll say let's set the number at 
12, over or under 12 starts in the Premier League. For Perez? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I'll take that. Over or under? Um, uh, Over. Over. Tim? Well, I I don't do American terminology. Over under under basically means I'm setting the number at 12, and you either have to say I think he'll play fewer or he'll he'll start more. He'll play more than that significantly. He'll start more than 12 matches in the Premier League. Okay, what about you, Tim? Uh, I think it will be on about that number. I'd say under, like 11 under. or something. All right, how about this? Goals for Arsenal this season for Lucas Perez. Over or under seven league goals this season? Paul? Mm, that's a tougher one. Uh, marginally over. Tim? But it'll be close. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we ended up with seven. Um, yeah. It's a good number to pick. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. It's going to be six, but seven, so I, eight, I mean, I with certainly no, no ill will intended to him, I think yeah, we yeah. can all agree, and we're totally off the path here now, but just really quickly, that a guy who starts around 12 times and scores around seven goals is certainly a useful squad player, but not the striker we felt we needed to really push on. Is that fair, Tim? Is that a fair assessment? It, if it turns out that way, which, yeah, I, I tend to think it might. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Paul, fair, not fair? Not fair. Okay, fair enough. Um, let's leave it there. We'll, we, <laughs> we'll, we'll go on. We're getting better at Look, this arguing we're, stuff, Elias. We're going to need 25 to 30 goals from someone. You, you need that guy to carry the load, and we certainly don't have enough players who score goals to share it around. We're not going to have my five guys. Who, with us taking pot shots. Again. No, I know, but I know it was only hope, but that's, that was kind of what I saw there. A Wobi, Theo, Paul, Alexis. We're not going to yeah. have five guys that score 15, right? Like, we know that. We we don't have that we don't have that kind of squad right now. Yeah. So I guess. we need someone to carry this. Someone's got to be Alexis. Yeah. Well, I, God bless. I hope it is the one thing I still think for be. us to be great. Alexis has to play great, and so far he's just playing okay, he, and he still got two goals. So good. Look, we're way off the beaten path. I I think this this was good. Let's leave it there. We'll come back to this. Someone keep track of that for us though. Twelve games and seven goals for Perez as a starter and in the league goals. And we'll come back and we'll, we'll track that throughout the season. In the meantime, Paul, as always, it is a pleasure. You can find Paul on Twitter at Positive My Pants. Thanks, Paul. No problem. Don't worry, Elliot. I've taken notes and you can trust me. <laughs> I believe part of that statement. And then uh, Tim is on Twitter at Stilberto. As always, Tim, big pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure, as always. My guess is we will uh, attempt to do one of these after the League Cup. Um, I don't. We haven't spoken to each other about availability yet, but there will be someone here doing some kind of podcast following the League Cup League Cup game against Nottingham Forest, and hopefully it will not be the greatest striker that ever lived scoring a hat trick. It'll be one of ours. Anyway, uh, cheers, and we'll talk to you after the next one. Looking for a new podcast to listen to? Here's what we love, courtesy of ACAST Recommends. What's going on, everybody? This is Mac Wilds, one-third of the almighty guys next door. And if you're listening to this, we want you to be a neighbor. Now, I know you guys are probably thinking, like, what do these guys talk about? What is that? Well, listen, we talk about everything under the sun. We talk about everything that it means to be a young millennial man in today's society, whether it's finance the type of condoms that you use, or how to deal with love issues, or lack of emotion. 
we talk about everything and we go there guys we go there we really really have a lot of fun so uh if you guys would love to we would love you to come on over come mosey on down you know right past sesame street we want you guys to come come kick it with us come get some sugar we are the guys next door peace a cash recommends